Starting in verse 7, says this. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 3, says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like pagans who do not know God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. You can read them on the screens. I know we're going kind of quickly. I'm going to do two more, this one and then one more. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Or do you... Not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Okay, so we're on a series called Money, Sex, and Marriage, and we're talking about these controversial subjects because, because the world has a lot to say about sex, and so does the Bible. The world has a lot to say about marriage, and so does the Bible. The world has a lot to say about money, and so does the Bible. And so we're talking about these controversial topics that are countercultural because we are fighting against this weight of what the culture has to say versus what the Bible has to say. And so we talked last week about marriage, and we talked about love not being an act of, uh, sorry, but about love being nothing more, nothing less than an, an act of the will. You give yourself up voluntarily for your spice, spouse, or spice, well, it's spicy, I don't know, voluntarily for your spouse, for your spouse, like Jesus gave himself up for us. If I'm blushing a little bit, it's because today we're talking about sex. And seriously, like, this is something that God has put on my heart, but I'm going to be walking on a little bit of thin ice here, and so, but I feel so convicted about this today. So if I start sweating or I slur my words a little bit, that's just because I am fighting my desire to not say what God has called me to say today, okay? Start off with a question. How many of you guys are still friends with uh, people from high school? Any friends from high school? Oh, several of you. Okay, okay. So my best friend, I've been friends with him for 30 years. And we, were, we started our friendship in high school. And, and when you have a friendship, you, um, for, for that long, you realize that there are certain topics that you just don't want to talk about because you've talked about those subjects before and you know that it's going to be a fight, right? So if you want to, you want to keep the friendship, you're not going to talk about those topics because you don't want to fight with your friend because you've already tried it and it doesn't work. The reason why I share that is because the same thing could be true in church. Like there's certain subjects that you, it would be so easy to just not talk about them. I'm like, I don't want to talk about this because I know that it's going to create conflict and people are going to have a lot of questions and a lot of pushback. But honestly, God has not called me to preach what is comfortable. He has called me to preach the full counsel of the word of God. And so, so that's what I'm going to do today. The easiest thing would be to not address them. And so, today I'm going to talk about sex, and I was going to talk about sex in a very generic way, like sexual purity and all those things that are, that are important, but I feel like the Lord called me to walk on some thin ice today, and we're going to talk about same-sex relationships. And you may ask yourself, why do we have to talk about this? This doesn't involve me, like maybe you're here and you're not gay, 
And you're thinking, why, does, why do we have to talk about this if this doesn't apply to me? Let me tell you today, this applies to you, and you will see why. Quick story. In college, some of you guys know I grew up in South America as a missionary there. I went to college in Chile. First day of college, uh, there's a group of 15 girls and three guys. This was like 20, year, 20 plus years ago. And on that first day, if you guys don't know, in Chile, like when you go to college, you have the same group of people that you go. It's like, um, it's like middle school. It's always the same, same group of people. So three guys, 15 girls. And for whatever reason, on that first day of class, two of the guys, they came out as gay that day. Like they decided, I'm going to say in front of the whole class, like I'm coming out of the closet. And they shared that. And I was, you know, sitting there kind of taking it all in. And then I was walking home with one of my female classmates, and she says, so what did you think about today? How was your, how was your first day? And I'm like, well, it was, it was an interesting first day, you know? I mean, I feel a little outnumbered, like I'm the only, you know, straight guy in the whole, in the whole class. And she's like, wait, do you have a problem with that? I mean, you know, are, are you, like, homophobic? I'm like, no, 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 and that's not what I'm saying. I, I'm just, you know, it was just an interesting day. And I realized in that moment that I was going to have to uh, deal with um, that reality for the rest of that year. And it just helped me understand that this is just, this was 20 years ago. So it was not like today where somebody comes out and it's like nobody hardly even cares because it's so common, right? But back then, uh, it was a little bit new. It was kind of a new thing. And so one of the things that I realized on that day is that that's just something that is a reality in the world today. And so it's true. Like, many of you here have friends who are gay. Many of you here have co-workers that are gay. Many of you here um, have uh, just people in your life that are, that are homosexual or are lesbian. Maybe, in fact, you are here today and you're gay, or you're a lesbian. And I want to tell you, the fact, the fact, you just stepped on what I was about to say, but the, fa the fact that you're here today, I want to tell you that's a win. Because, because the fact that you feel that you can come into this space and you can have an encounter with Jesus, I count that as a win. And I want to say, if you're here and you're gay, I'm happy that you are here today. But here's the thing. We have to address this. And, and the question is, how do we address this? And if we address this, what do we say about it? Or should we say anything about it? Well, number one, we do need to address it because the Bible addresses it. And number two, what do we say about it? Well, we say what the Bible says. I don't want you to hear my opinion about this. I want to just show you what the Bible says about this. People sometimes ask me, would you ever do a gay wedding? And my answer is no. And, and that sounds harsh. And it's not that I don't love you, and it's not that I don't want you to be happy, but, but marriage is a divine institution, which means that it was God's idea, and God who created marriage defines it for us, and he says in his word that it is between one man and one woman. The Bible says that, Matthew chapter 19. And so, I can't be so irresponsible as to proclaim a blessing on a union that God doesn't bless. Does that make sense? It's pretty simple. In the same way that I can't pronounce um, a, a man and a man as a couple, a woman as a woman as a couple, I, can't, I also can't do that with those who are unequally yoked. 
uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 14, which means a believer and a non-believer. I cannot proclaim a blessing on a union that God clearly in the scriptures doesn't bless. So the Bible is pretty clear about some of these things. But I believe the question today is deeper than that. What about homosexuality? Can you be gay and be a Christian? Is what I want us to talk about a little bit today. So I have this friend, it's about 10 years ago, my same name, his name was Joshua as well. So we, we got to know each other. I was uh, working at a different church back then and uh, presented him the gospel. He became a Christian, then I baptized him. The next day we're having coffee and he tells me, hey, I am, um, I'm a homosexual. The day after he got baptized. And so the reason why I share that, because it sets up the question really interesting. He got baptized, he's gay, but he's a Christian. I'm like, so how does that work out? So I want us to talk a little bit about that. Can you be a Christian if you're gay? Let's see what the Bible says. Leviticus 8.22, it says this. Do not have sexual relationships with a man as one does with a woman. This is detestable. Romans 1.27, in the same way that men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another, men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. 1 Corinthians 6.9 says, Or do you not know that, that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. So, the Bible says it is detestable, it says that it's an error, it says that it is shameful, and that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's close in prayer. I'm joking. We have to, we have to stop here. We have to stop. We have to stop here. And here's why. Have you ever been so focused on one thing that you missed the whole thing because you're just looking at that and you don't see the context? You see, Paul does say that those, who have, that those men who have sex with, with men will not inherit the kingdom. He does say that. But when you zoom out, you realize that he's saying the same thing about wrongdoers, about idolaters, about those who steal, about those who are greedy, about those who are slanderers, and those who are swindlers. They won't either. He says that. And here's our problem. That we have created a scoring system for sin. You know, like when you, in the Olympics, when they're diving and they, they score, you know, hey, that was an eight, that was a seven. Well, I made a little one here. So this is, right? It's a one. Okay. Um, let's see. Gossip. What, what number does gossip have? Huh? Two? Two. It's a prayer request, right? <laughs> lying. What number is lying? Five. Who said five? Five. Steal, stealing. That's pretty bad. Seven, right? Seven? Okay. All right. And homosexuality is a ten. Okay. So here's the thing. I, I don't know where we got this idea, Okay. But, but hear, me, hear me well, I am not here to tell you that those who have sex with the same sex will inherit the kingdom. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that neither were those who steal, who worship food, who gossip, who are liars. I'm not here to lessen the gravity of those who have, this, have sex with the same sex. What I'm doing here, and I think that what Jesus is doing, he's leveling the playing field. So let's not be too quick to judge others for sinning differently than we do. 
See, we are all dead in transgressions and sins, Ephesians chapter 2. But this creates a problem. You see, if we're, if we're leveling the playing field, right? We're, we're leveling the playing field. And the question is, who then can inherit the kingdom of God? You see, the problem here is that I think we misunderstand what, what it means to level the playing field. Because the assumption is that when Jesus came into the world, that he made everything easier, that he made everything attainable. But when you look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount, you realize that he doesn't make it easier. He makes it harder. He makes it so much harder. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is basically Jesus interpreting the Ten Commandments. Remember, he says, you have heard it said that committing adultery You'll be judged if you commit adultery, right? But I say that if you look at a woman lustfully, you have already committed adultery with her in your heart. You have heard it said, Jesus says. You have heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you that if you get mad at someone and you insult him, you have already committed murder in your heart. You are going to be judged by that. And so not only will gossips and liars and swindlers, but also those who lust or those who have a bad temper. And so my goal today is not to convince you, hear me out, my goal today is not to convince you that having sex with the same sex is okay, but to remind you that no matter how righteous you think you are or I think that I am, it is never going to be enough. Jesus says if you will, you will enter the kingdom of God only if your righteousness surpasses those of the Pharisees. What does that mean? What was the righteousness of Moses, let's say? The Ten Commandments, right? Okay, what is, what's the righteousness of the Pharisees? 613 laws that they added to the Ten. And Jesus is saying, it's not the Ten, it's not the 613, it is if your righteousness surpasses those of the Pharisees, that, w- that is what will qualify you to be able to inherit the kingdom of God. The problem is that we get it wrong over and over again. Like, we don't understand what this, what this means many times. We think that what Jesus is saying is that, okay, now you got to try harder and you got to do your best because, yes, you are actually able to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. It's almost like when Jesus says in Matthew 9, you guys remember this? He's saying, he's saying uh, I have not come for, for the, I've come for the sick because those who are healthy don't need a doctor. And so what is he saying here? The Pharisees are there. And he's saying, I'm not, I haven't, I've come for the sick. Not for the healthy. But here's the problem, that, that the healthy don't need a doctor, the sick need a doctor, right? And so the Pharisees assumed, oh, the Pharisees are the healthy ones, so we're the ones that are good, so we don't need a doctor. And the sick, these who are, you know, living the life the way that they want, they're the ones that need a doctor because they are sick. He's saying, yes, there are two types of people. There are two types of people. There are the sick who know that they're sick, And there are those who are sick, who need a doctor. And so here's the thing. There are the the sick who know they're sick, and there are the sick who think they are healthy. That's what I meant to say. I said it wrong. There are the sick who know that they are sick, and there are the sick who think that they are healthy. 
You see, Jesus did not come for the sick who think they are healthy because the sick who think they are healthy do not seek out help. The point is we are all sick. That's what I'm trying to say today. And in the same way that he was not saying, if your righteousness surpasses those of the Pharisees, he not saying you got to try harder to be able to, to make it up here. What he's saying is he wants us to be able to crash into this wall and realize that no matter how hard we try, we're not going to be able to attain the righteousness that is required for us to be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned, all have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. All. Murderers, gossips, same-sex marriage, bad temper, Billy Graham, Adolf Hitler, Mother Teresa, Vladimir Putin, all have fallen short. All. And the result is this, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's our destination as a result of our sin. And what is sin? Sin is missing the mark. And what is the mark? Perfection. Whose perfection? The perfection of God. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says it himself, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That, that is not a ladder that we're called to climb up to. It is a wall we are called to crash into and fall on our backs so that we only face up and we seek help. That's all of us. So when we ask the question, can a person who has sex with the same sex enter the kingdom of heaven? The answer is no. But neither can you or I. Don't think that you are righteous. I can't think that I am righteous either because my sin is different. So the question is here. So if we're all doomed, where's our hope? Right? Yes. It's back to the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that what? In him, in him, in him. We might become the righteousness of God in Him, not in us, in Him. So that's the only way that we can fulfill the prescription that Jesus says that our, that our righteousness needs to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and that we need to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. That's the only way. It's in Him. It's in Jesus Christ. It's by placing our faith in Jesus who fulfilled the law. He does all the work. So we have to start with the gospel. We have to. And once you put your, your faith in Jesus, then there's this process that theologians call sanctification, which means that, that you're in a process that as time goes by, you start to look more and more like, like Christ. So if I see Tony today, and then I see Tony in one year, you know, he's going to be a better person. He's going to be more Christ-like. I'm going to see more of Christ in, in Tony. And the same is true for you. 
If you put your faith in Jesus, then there's this process called sanctification that's going to happen in your life. You're going to lie less. You're going to be more forgiving. You're going to, you're going to little by little, give up your addictions. You're going to be kinder, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the same is true with same-sex relationships. You'll come into this process where God will start purifying you. But here's where we have to pause. And the reason why we have to pause here is because many people think, or at least a significant amount of people think, that their homosexuality does not need to be sanctified. It seems like, like there's a disagreement on whether or not having sex with the same sex is something that needs to be sanctified. There seems to be a discussion about that. And here's the logic. I'm going to say this very respectfully. Here's the logic. Because I, I feel, you may say this, I feel attracted to the same sex. I feel it. Like this is something that I, that I feel, and I can't help but feeling attracted toward the same sex. Pastor, are you, are you saying that feeling attracted to the same sex is a sin? I'm not here to tell, you, to tell you or to define whether or not what you feel is real. I'm not here. I'm not going to have that discussion. But rather the question is, why do you believe that the reason something is right or worth pursuing is because you feel it? You see, if you take that premise to its natural progression... We don't end up in a good place. Like, I feel like doing a lot of things. I feel like hitting on my brakes when I'm on the freeway and there's a car that's too close to me, I'm just going to hit my brakes. <laughs> Have you ever felt that? You know, I feel like punching someone in the face when that person disrespects me. I feel it. Quite, quite honestly, there are times when I feel like having sex with women who are not my wife. Now listen to this. That is not, because you feel something, that is not the right thing to do, and it doesn't mean that that thing that you feel, because it's so real, that that is worth pursuing. Imagine a society who's guided by the, that makes decisions based on what they feel versus what is right. Imagine relationships, imagine the families, imagine our country. I'll keep it simple. Sexual immorality in any way, shape, or form is not the will of God. Men having sex with men is not the will of God. Women having sex with women is not the will of God. Men and women having sex outside of marriage is not the will of God. Uh, masturbating to porn is not God's plan. Any type of sexual immorality that is outside, any kind of sex that is outside of marriage the marriage covenant, which is defined by God, the author of marriage, which is between one man and one woman, is sin, period. That's what the Bible says. So this is not about following what you feel. It's about obeying God, who created sexuality. So maybe you're here today and you have same-sex attraction, or you know someone who has same-sex attraction, or you, you have friends who are homosexual, you have friends who are, who are lesbian, and like, how do, we, how do we approach this? Maybe you're here and, and you feel guilty, like you know it's wrong, you've acted on your desires, and you feel, you feel this, the weight of guilt, because you know it's wrong. Well, there's grace for it. There's forgiveness, there's second chances. That's the gospel. 
So I'm going to end with this. To take another shower after this. <laughs> Thanks for bearing with me. But listen, this is important. Have you ever started a job without a job description? I had this job once, and I like, yeah, you're gonna. This is your, this is your title. Go and go and do it. No job description. I didn't know what to do. So like, after a week went by, I was sitting in my office, and I'm like, well, I just got to figure something out, you know. And so I just started making up my own job. Ended up working out fine, but. It's not this job, by the way. This job description was pretty clear. Um, but, but I started uh, making up my job. Like, I had to just kind of, you know, figure out what to do. The reason why I bring that up is because I, th- I think sometimes as Christians as well, we, we don't understand what we're called to do. And so we start making it up. And many times we think that, that our, our job description when it comes to someone who's a homosexual or someone who is a lesbian is like, hey, your primary goal is to get them to stop being gay. As Christians, I want to tell you that is not what it is. So the question is this, how do we as Christians approach someone who is a homosexual or is a lesbian? How do we approach it? We've done a, we've done a terrible job. To answer that question, we have to answer, what did Jesus do? How did Jesus approach it? How did Jesus approach sexual sin? And one of the best Moments in which Jesus approaches sexual sin is when he caught the woman in adultery, when he had to approach the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Remember? They were going to stone her to death, right? He says a few things, and then they're all gone. Then he talks to her, and he, and he says two things to her. He says, number one, neither do I condemn you. And number two, go and leave your life of sin. The problem is that as as Christians, we've gotten the order wrong. Because I think the order is important too. He starts by saying, neither do I condemn you. That's the first thing he says. I don't think that's random. He says it first, neither do I condemn you. And then number two, he says, go and leave your life of sin. The problem is that I think as Christians, we have flipped that. And we say, first, you've got to clean up your life before you can approach Jesus. Good luck trying to have someone change their life of sin as a result of guilt. Good luck trying to do that. Our job isn't to point out the sin of the person, but to point that person to Jesus. And when that person has an encounter with Jesus, Jesus will start working on the inside of that person. That's the way to do it. Oh, you got to stop being gay. You can't do that because that's a sin. Okay, fine. There'll be time for that. But that person needs Jesus just like we do every single day. We expect someone to leave their life of sin without first encountering the love of Jesus. Good luck with that. Billy Graham, I think, defines our job description very well. He said this once. He says, Jesus saves. The Holy Spirit convicts. God judges. And we have one job to love. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the word today. Thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you, God, because you, you help us navigate these tough su- subjects. We don't want to uh, call good what you have called sin, but we want to bathe everything in love like you did. 
It's a hard time we're living in, God. It's difficult times. It's strange times that we're in right now. We trust you, Lord, and we thank you. And I I thank you, God, for the hearts that were open today to, to hear this word. And I pray that it will help each one of us properly approach our own sin and properly approach those who sin differently than we do. We thank you so much for your sacrifice because as a result of only what you did, can we enter the kingdom of God. So we open our hearts again to you. We thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.